Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today we are talking to Alexis Walker. We are talking to her about her career path into user experience research and her experience working on the design of technological products. Alexis has a vast experience in this field and it was a delight to talk to her. So stick around and listen. Um, Alexis, we're so glad to have you on our podcast today. Um, (laughs) And we're going to dive right into it uh, with our first question that we kind of normally ask all all of our speakers, which is, if you could tell us from your perspective, what is technology and what is anthropology? Sure. Um, So in the field of science and technology studies that I'm trained in, usually we take a pretty broad definition of technology. So I think of it as anything really that's used for an objective, so some anything used to accomplish something. So people uh, often associate it with computing these days, but just because something isn't avant-garde, it doesn't make it any less of a technology. For example, your standard eyeglasses, just because they might not uh, have smart technology or um, be the most cutting-edge technology, doesn't mean they're not a technology that enables you to see. Mm-hmm. They're st- so um, I think that broad definition of technology, it opens up academic uses of the term that I think sometimes people find um, kind of superfluous or wishy-washy even for some academics because um, people start calling some very abstract things technology. So, for example, we have Foucault's technology of the self. Um, I mean, I can talk more about that, et cetera. But um, the if you keep in mind the really basic definition of technology as just mm-hmm. something that's used for an objective, then that helps understand what, how some of these um, broad academic uh, theories about technologies mm-hmm. as concepts, as um, why they make sense. Um, and I think it's actually really significant to be able to have that broad perspective on technology because then it helps us make connections that we might not otherwise make. So, mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, earlier, well, last year in 2017, the, um, one of the co-founders of GEMIC, which is a, um, a social science-based qualitative consulting firm that's quite um, large and, uh, and well-known, um, wrote a piece for uh, Epic, I believe it was, that was about um, rethinking wearables, so wearables technologies, but in terms of like, you know, more standard definition of technology in terms of um, uh, Fitbit or um, smartwatches, et cetera, mm-hmm. Apple watches. But re- he, he wrote this piece where rethinking technology, uh, clothing broadly as a technology. Mm-hmm. And when you think of clothing as a technology, as a tool that's meant to accomplish different ends, then you can replace the idea of wearables in a broader context about what clothing accomplishes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can help you think broadly about and and in kind of interesting ways about design and um, about technology in many ways. So that was a bit of a long definition of technology, but I remember you did also ask me about anthropology. Anthropology for me is about, in part about its method. So 
ethnography, uh, closely related or uh, very similar to participant observation, but really the tool that's based in studying people from the perspective of the people that you are interested in knowing about as close as you can get to that. So the idea is to put yourself as a researcher in the position of the people that you're interested in knowing about. And that usually takes uh, relative in-depth engagement. So in academic anthropology, that's often uh, multiple years and commercial contexts, usually it's shorter. (laughs) So um, this method is really important to anthropology, but clearly ethnography is also used in a lot of other fields. Mm -hmm. A lot of sociologists conduct ethnography. So part of anthropology is also about the body of literature and theory that's, that composes the field. And also that's really closely then related to networks, right? So who are the people who talk to each other Hmm. um, in person or in conferences or in writing and who cite each other, et cetera. And I think that that, those are things that, that start like uh, constructing a field. So then, you know, then you, then you start to say, okay, well, but what about um, applied anthropology that might uh, have slightly different circles? Yeah, they don't, those don't have to be coterminous, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's also, I think a difference between anthropology as we're defining it as a field and anthropological thinking. So Mm -hmm. the, the forms of thinking that, Um, the discipline of anthropology encourages the kind of in-depth engagement with the people that you're studying and the critical perspectives on um, society, et cetera, that anthropology brings can also be brought to many other areas that are not perhaps what we would call traditional anthropology. Um, I was wondering if you could tell a bit our listeners with about your own journey with technology and anthropology, how, how did it work for you so far? I'm trained in a department of science and technology studies. So I did mm-hmm. my PhD in science and technology studies or STS as we abbreviate that. Um, but I'm trained as an anthropologist within this interdisciplinary field. So that's somewhere that I, um, on a pretty daily basis, deal with the lines of disciplines. Um, so for example, I usually attend the Amer- annual meetings of the American Anthropological Association and I apply for anthropology grants and sometimes receive them, which is exciting. And um, I, you know, teach in anthropology departments, etc. So those are all some of these, like when I was talking about networks, you know, those are some of the ways those disciplines then um, shake out. But I am trained, you know, my, my PhD says science and technology studies. So sometimes that's um, that is confusing in terms of what is the what is the discipline, right? But uh, or what is your uh, you know what is your background? But so I'm trained in STS. Um, I my undergrad degree is actually in biology, so I come come from that field. As many many um, STS scholars, I think, um, mm-hmm. bring together some kind of quote unquote technical background with a social science and humanities lens that they're getting together. Um, so, but alongside my PhD, in the final years of my PhD, I started an ethnographic consulting um, practice that I run mainly under my own name, Alexis Walker Consulting, um, that consults with a, a really big variety of clients. So like big uh, multi-billion dollar uh, food companies and aviation companies in the U.S. Um, and uh, small tech startups uh, working on using ethnography to study both organizational culture and also um, aspects for product development. So mm-hmm. especially engagement um, uh, on the customer side, for example. My academic position currently, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Hopkins. So mm-hmm. I do definitely um, live between 
multiple <laughs> worlds in industry and in academia and finding that balance is is a it's complicated and it's something I spend a lot of time talking to my fellow practitioners in the field about. So I would love if you can tell us a bit more about the kind of relationship that people build with technologies in general and and maybe you could you know explain it through the lens of some of your projects or or tell us a little bit of a story um that can also um take take our listeners on a path of of understanding what makes anthropology different um and maybe what makes it useful within a design process all right so i mean in terms of um the kinds of relationships that people build with technologies i mean you can imagine when you use a broad definition of technology yeah. like i do that answer to that question is hugely vast it would describe pretty much all of human behavior yeah. so uh it's a little bit of a tough question to start addressing but i guess that one of the things that i think is really helpful from an anthropological perspective is the kind of um deeply textured and nuanced ways that we're able to get at some of the questions and also the um kind of uh you could call it critical perspective or an ability to step outside of the kind of standard ways of looking at certain questions and ideas so i think that one thing you know when we talk about the relation people's relationships to technology um there's often a tendency to think about um people create a technology and then it gets taken up or resisted mm-hmm. um and those are pretty broad boxes to fit into and i think a lot of um anthropology has helped complicate some of those categories but not just for the sake of complication but for the sake of better deeper understanding and i think that's often a big challenge in anthropology is trying to bring out the nuances without getting so trapped in the details that you don't aren't able to say anything at all because if you're so busy in the particularities then you can't generalize at all mm-hmm. yeah. and that's also not all that helpful so you yeah. want so trying to find that that balance i think is a, is a, a a challenge but that's what i think really good anthropology does so i think when i talk about so um you know that the anthropology and STS have really challenged this idea of like design and uptake or resistance i'm currently working um on a paper about the concept of resistance to public health technologies in the ebola outbreak in west africa in um like tw- around 2014 2015 um and the a lot of organizations described in that case for example this kind of resist quote unquote resistance of uh people in West Africa to public health technologies because even when people are trying to uh do it in a culturally sensitive way they are saying oh well um these these cultures uh have long-term funeral practices and therefore they're resisting the public health technologies that we are bringing to save their lives from mm-hmm. Ebola. And that is a really really simplistic mm. um and problematic way of describing even in the efforts for cultural sensitivity um it puts this box of resistance without really a very deep look into what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it why or what is going on? I mean, and then you look and you see that well, actually a lot of people called um burial teams that they were asked, being asked to call um and then no one showed up. So mm-hmm. they therefore <laughs> went ahead and buried buried folks. And so there is uh often a way of uh simplifying some of these terms of 
resistance or uptake uh, as if they're simple processes without looking behind what they mean. And an anthropological lens can then help you say, well, okay, well, what does that really mean? And okay, so now we can have a really different understanding of what this problem was. Um, Also, for example, so my my, um, dissertation work, my PhD dissertation work uh, looked at the public health programs run by international financial institutions. And that's part of where my work overlaps kind of medical anthropology and Mm -hmm. organizational anthropology. So um, looking as part of it is... uh, like doing ethnography at the World Bank headquarters at, in a large financial institution and thinking about how people work together and make decisions, mm-hmm. um, but also in the but in the context of public health. And um, one thing I've looked at there is the um, decision making around uh, economic technology. So one, um, there's been a fair amount of scholarship suggesting that um, more and more uh, in the world today, people are uh, amenable to economic arguments that they're they're particularly strong in comparison to some past periods that's at least a very uh um hefty amount of scholarship suggesting that and part of my dissertation was meant to look at okay so in this international financial institution which which is theoretically a a, uh, kind of home center of economic um expertise what how, how are um, economic tools like cost-benefit and cost-effectiveness analysis, um, economic technologies, we'd call them, um, being mm-hmm. used. And actually, one thing that my dissertation finds is that the um, there isn't this kind of like overwhelming power of economic technologies that you might guess even in this site where you would expect it. So uh, you might expect it even if you don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> um, so the... Um, I trust I dealt in my PhD with thinking about, okay, well, how do I not talk about a simple resistance model? But, you know, what about the complexities of healthcare workers who are uh, saying, well, but we don't actually believe what this economic technology tells us we're supposed to do. We have other kinds of expertise, um, whether that's my medical school training or my long term experience in public health in Guyana or whatever else it is that tell me what are the prior what priorities in the health sector ought to be. And even though you are telling me that this economic technology is meant to tell to uh, tell me what I need to put my most the greatest mm-hmm. efforts into in my health system, we have other kinds of expertise that um, don't line up with that. And that's not um, that they addressed our anti-science. I mean, a lot of it is based on medicine, medical expertise, right? But there, so there's a complicated uh, push pushback uh, sometimes against the kinds, the, the, there's a cultural context about what kinds of technologies make sense. And mm-hmm. even when we think they might, there is often other kinds of um, factors that feed into why or why not why those technologies do make sense, what kinds of pushback that and reshaping that happens. I was thinking one of the challenges when you when you have like a let's say a human centered approach and you put the company on one side and the consumer on the other side and you start getting them to talk to each other is that you assume that the company is an entity that is coherent in itself. Mm-hmm. And you know, within that concept of a company, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of social dynamics that kind of influence at the end the final product that comes out there just as much as the practice of engaging with consumers, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that. You know, how does the the, 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 the system and the practices and the cultures inside an organization kind of help or not help at times the way they um, 
design and engage with with the consumers of their products. Yeah, so um, actually one um, tech startup that I worked with, we had a project where, uh, which was meant to be a consumer uh, research uh, project, and it very much turned into an organizational culture project because... (laughs) Especially in the con- I mean, in that context of the startup, it was a small. It's a small. It was a small enough company where the visions of the founder and what was important to him were so deep. You know, mm-hmm. he'd spent time, and this was something that was hugely important to him. His his baby, his company that was so important to him, and so his understandings of what the tech needed this start needed to do. Um, didn't really match up with what um, customers were and the lives of customers and the nuances of their lives that we were finding. And that, um, and so trying to interview upper, the upper management of the company and try and also observe their work, et cetera, to try to think about what means there might be to trying to bring them closer to some of the work we were doing that, that we had actually been initially hired to do um, with customers was very much a part of it. And it's, that is, um, can be a tension, I think also for people who are, uh, for cons- people who are working as consultants, et cetera, that are tr- um, studying, uh, you know, p- perhaps putting a large amount of work into um, studying things on the, um, for product design, but then discovering that their reports, whatever, just sit on a desk or whatever else. And that can be a real challenge because if you don't have a long-term engagement with the organization, then hmm. You were hired to do a research project that you did, and then you let then you left, and not not because yeah. not to put blame on the anthropologist who leaves. I mean, you might want to have more engagement with how that work gets put into practice, but not be invited to do so. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that's can be a really big um, challenge when the person who's doing the research of, of you know on the um, product design side, for example, isn't able to be really involved past the writing of their report. Um, I think that that's a real uh, uh, big challenge and something that I don't know that there can be um, a, a, a simple solution other than perhaps broader uh, recognition of the importance of that kind of the people who did that research being involved in yeah. uh, a later stage of how that gets then put into practice or integrated with um, practice. Yeah, I think I think one of the multiple layers of a work of an anthropologist that does applied work is that you're not just studying the people that use a specific type of product. You're also studying the people that use that information, you know, meaning the organization. So it's almost a kind of a double ethnography to a certain extent. Um, and, and I think that also makes it a bit more difficult, right? Like if you start thinking about the role of the anthropologist and how do they see themselves and their value and you know like mm-hmm. who is the sponsor of that specific project and how do you right. how do you drive an action of when it's needed of um, organizational change or if it's needed inside that space right because right. I would say that that puts on one side it's, I think it's an advantage to the companies that do want to reflect about that and they want to understand better also how their own teams work and, you know, the, those cultural dynamics that are inside product teams and design teams as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be also a disadvantage if it's a culture that, that has its, its own specific way of doing things and they're not just, they're not interested to disrupt or reflect on that, you know? 
So no, I completely. I, I was wondering from your perspective, because this field of applied anthropologists is still pretty new when it comes to being taught, mm-hmm. right? What does, it, what does it mean for an anthropologist that comes from a specific way of learning how to do an- ethnography and mm-hmm. anthropology and a system of rapport and ethics into this completely new world um, of organizational culture and consumer culture? How, how did you yeah. see that, that transition from your experience? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that the field of academic anthropology, um, one of its great values is thinking very um, critically about um, contemporary capitalism and often being critical thereof. And um, it, I think, is very challenging for many people in academic anthropology to uh, engage with commercial ethnography because of the um, inherent um, mm-hmm. relationships of capital, right? Yes. So that is a big challenge. The um, thing is that academic anthropology also has relationships of capital. It's not, I'm not trying to say they're the same, um, but I am say, trying to say that I think it's would be rewarding for academic anthropology to more often look at the power dynamics that exist um, mm-hmm within the university. I do think people are critical of the university um, and academic structures. I'm not saying that that's absent, but I think that being able to see a little bit more the connection um, between the very strong um, relationships, for example, of um, uh, the gender relationships in academia, the race relationships in Mm. academia, the relationships that allow people to succeed in academia because of the financial situations of their family that enable their study studies, et cetera. Those are all, I think that there is a certain recognition of it, but I mean, perhaps the financial side, but I mean, the um, many of the gender and race dynamics in academia are continue to be very, very challenging. Mm. And the um, it's, I think, thinking about the thinking really honestly about a um, arena to which you've dedicated your life can be also very challenging. And I think, and so I want to give credit that there's a lot of people doing really excellent work, challenging the structures of universities uh, in a lot of countries and a lot of places in the world. Um, But I think that bringing that together to be able to think about, okay, so we work in a, context um that has it that um, the university we work for a universe for universities i mean academic anthropology by definition <laughs> um people are working for universities so there are the and then okay so let's think about the people who are working for other kinds of organ institutions and certainly they have different kinds of power and relationships in the world and um Again, I'm not trying to say, okay, well, the university is just like a corporation, although, you know, people are making that argument more and more. (laughs) Um, And so um, to, you know, reject immediately the work with um, uh, large centers of capital, um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there is is an opportunity lost. But I do think it's not like it's it's still something that I struggle with. And I think that that's actually something that is... um, a reward of anthropology is that learning to struggle with that to say like these are really there are, um, 
there there are these tensions that I that are um, important and productive even, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of self challenging that that I think anthropologists are taught to do, um, which can also often be um, incapacitating. It's 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 a real it can be a real challenge I think for anthropologists because you're taught to say okay well what does that like is, what does that term mean well, what is that structure what is that all of these are problems and then that can can make it very difficult to engage in the world if you can't even use any words because every word has a you know has, oh well what does that mean here's the problems behind that etc but I think still that 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 questioning that is not only anthropology right but a lot of academic um social sciences and humanities, um, I think, you know, um, kind of in-depth study in a mul- in many fields can lead you to that kind of nuanced um, reflexivity. But I think um, anthropology is a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that that kind of questioning and self-questioning is, is significant. And, and um, even that, I think it is really can be quite productive. Yeah. I, I was wondering... Um I was wondering about um, the concept of an intervention in an mm-hmm. academic anthropology, because from my personal um, um, kind of academic education, I was trained to apply ethnography and anthropology uh, in a certain way that the moment you start applying it in business, it requires of you different things. And I think the, the concept that I struggled with it the most was intervention. The fact that in mm-hmm. business, it's not just important that you tell them something, but you tell them, what does this do? You know, so what do I do with this? What can I build with this? How can it give me more something, more of something? Um, and they look at the anthropologist as the one that is supposed to give that 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 shape um, um, to that something. <laughs> so, uh, but that an opposition in academic anthropology, you're kind of taught, well, you have to observe the world as it is um, and make a reflection on that. But that reflection doesn't necessarily need to lead to an intervention. And, you know, looking into the colonialistic parts of anthropology is kind of even resisting the idea of having an intervention because that implies a power dynamic that the anthropologist Mm -hmm. doesn't want to be um, a part of. But that in the corporate environment is completely kind of like flipped on its head. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit more to that from your experience of of doing um, applied anthropology. Yeah, yeah. all right. So I think that I very much agree that the concept of intervention presents a challenge because of the, uh, I mean, in an academic context, then um, if the, you know, okay, so we're our object in many, uh, or our objective in many contexts is critique, right? And um then when you're involved in the intervention, then that really changes those relationships and the possibilities. I think that um, you know, there's some uh, been some people who have claimed, oh, okay, well, if you're a um, uh, commercial ethnographer, then, you know, you're not, you're not really an anthropologist. And I, I, I don't really have a, 
problem with relinquishing some of the terms, right? If, if I think that has created some um, frustration with, uh, for applied anthropologists who say, well, but like, we're not recognized by, by other anthropologists because of our applied work and we're anthropologists too, et cetera. And I, and I understand where that comes from, but I also don't have a big, um, um, personal concern with the, the, those those labels not to say that lab, I mean labels clearly matter that's not what I'm insinuating <laughs> but I, I, to let go of the title of anthropologist if that's you know people say okay well that's not anthropology anymore then then that's okay with me personally to say okay well that's maybe that's perhaps why the term ethnography gets used a little bit more because the tool um the kind of methodological tool uh, becomes the focus rather than anthropology mm. as perhaps the kind of academic or like the intellectual output of the just kind of description mm. of the, of a situation and perhaps yeah. critique thereof. So I think, um, and also the kind of aim to create some kind of broader knowledge outside of the sole institution with which you work or company with which you work, et cetera, organization. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, I think that the, um, I think that it, it I'm just, I'm just coming out of finishing my PhD and I think that I still I you know I uh, had a very strong socialization in the significance of um, the position of an academic that that what that allows you to be able to say as a result of your position um, as opposed to um, somebody who is perhaps a little bit more um, responsible to somebody who's paying them to, you know, to create a, to create that research that they're doing. Um, So I think that that's continues for me to be a a challenge to work across. When I say like many worlds, I would say that that's definitely one of the big um, um, challenges to say, okay, well, what do I find value in personally? And, um, in terms of trying to work between those spaces. Um, mm. yeah. But you, you, you think that, you know, sometimes one of the things that we also ask um, some of our speakers, especially those that are like you with the feed in both world is um, what do you think would help somebody to figure out while you're still studying either a PhD or a master, if applied, if the applied sector is something for you to consider, like mm. how do you make that, um, kind of choice or that kind of exploration mm-hmm. yeah well there's a you know a huge world of applied anthropology that I have I had very little idea about when I was um even when I was doing my PhD even and mm-hmm. and um I mean not you know to, I certainly know you know it existed but there but understanding more beyond that was really limited so I would say that you know those are um Areas. I mean, there's a lot of conferences, meetings, etc. That that um, people can start to kind of dip a toe in other uh, areas. So right, that while there's, I mean, there's anthropology and industry. I don't see that as at all the same as applied anthropology. It may be a part of applied anthropology, but there's a lot of kinds of applied anthropology. Like applied medical anthropology um, is is often, you know, okay for a public health context how do we make a health intervention hmm. um and uh that is very very far from 
industry. I mean, it doesn't have to be, it could also, it could also overlap with industry, but many of them do not at all and are very far. I mean, not at all. Yeah. Little in the world today does not at all involve any kind of commercial um, aspect, but uh, nonetheless, that is to say that I don't think anthrop- I, I don't want to. I want to be really clear that applied anthropology and commercial anthropology, commercial ethnography, are really not the not the same thing at all. They overlap, mm. but aren't the same. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of places, areas of applied anthropology to um, kind of dip into, and I think that the um, those areas can often like bring a lot of meaning to people in terms of why it might matter that you are doing that theory that you are that you're doing um because i think it's really easy in um a um graduate program to and perhaps other places but that's what i know most about um to get to wonder what the point of the work you're doing is Mm. um when uh, the, when the production is for academic journals that perhaps you publish an article and very few people read or you are presenting at a conference and very few people attend your talk or whatever yeah. else, yeah, it's easy to get to wonder, well, what is the point of this? And there are ways to not lose the power of the theoretical work that you're doing mm. and conceptual work Um while also in engaging, I think, you know, that that can, I think, bring like really, really enrich the uh, theoretical um, and conceptual yeah. work. But this, that's something that I, it's taken me a long time to get to. And I won't, I, I think it's important that I not pretend that I didn't spend like most of my PhD feeling like applied work was somehow, oh, well, you know, that's not like, they don't really like, they're not really critical. You know, they don't really... <laughs> get it you know I mean that's the message that I had very strongly yeah and that is hard to shake if that's what you know that that's everything Andrew you hear that and I think Mm. um there's yeah I love it that you speak about value because I think value is a very nice filter to start exploring where do you fit within these worlds you know because I think if the definitions of what is the output of an anthropological work in academia and non-academia are very different but then the question is what do you personally find value in you know like what is your position on your work being used and for what and I think uh, that is something that uh, each person has to kind of figure out for themselves but you know trying to to kind of I'm being like, you know, kind of taking the power of um, taking the power outside of the hands of the academia or the business sector to tell you where that value is and just thinking through it yourself. You know, where do you see that value in the in the output? I want, right. I, I also want to be really clear that I think um, I um, that I don't mean in any way to critique academic anthropology as I think that there's so much. Hmm. Uh, a value and uh, people who who choose to like remain within the academic spirit I, I, it's an incredibly challenging career it yeah. is um, and I and I really respect people who have been able to accomplish yeah <laughs> you know to have yeah. to, to put together careers in academic anthropology um, I you know, and I, I still, you know, I continue to um, hope to, as I said, like when I try to want to engage in multiple spaces, um, that is because I, because of that deep respect that I have for academic, for the academic world. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I also feel the same thing. Like, there's a lot of value in both of them. Um, the the question is, like, from my personal experience, I feel like they these two environments they make you choose between them. Um, so it's kind of like you know, like when you have a, a parents that that kind of hate each other and they get the divorce, and you can't really be with both at the same time because it's kind of like a treason to one or the other. So I think the, these two environments, they kind of um, they kind of make the people that want to be in both feel like they should be just in one um, and kind of disregard the other or, or find more value in one than in the other. Um, so, and I think also the way that the, the, the they are, and I think part of the reason comes from what you were mentioning earlier, which is discourse against capitalism and neoliberalism and the association of all of these efforts with the corporate sector and not with the whole society, including academia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, on that, I would say that I think that in general, there's, um, from where I Sit currently, the it is easier to have a career on the industry side that engages with academia and values yeah. the engagement with academia. That is, I mean, I would say there's a lot of in space commercial spaces that actually really put a lot of value in continuing to in somebody who has an academic um, continued connection. And I would say it's less so the other direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you seen that differently in other markets or is your experience um, solely focused on, on the United States? Uh, well, I've worked outside of the U.S. context quite a bit, but I would say that um, the most of those, most of my private sector work has been through, well, even though it has been in other countries, um, has been through a U.S. Uh, company that yeah. has been my client, for yeah. example. US. So that's still the primary context that that I have for it. Um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, and also, I've also been in academic spaces in other countries. I did my master's in France, but hmm. I, um, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I won't speak too much to the other context markets. outside of the U.S. I think that's the one that I can speak most validly to. I mean, I think also there's certainly the U.S. is a, like, large and varied country <laughs> and the academia within also. Yeah. I mean, that's something that also I think that, um, so I did my Ph.D. at Cornell and I did my undergraduate degree at Brown. And the circles in the, of those universities um, are, are often... Um, uh, rather elitist. I mean, I think people, uh, I, I trying to use my words a little bit strategically here. Um, but I think most people within at most, most people at Cornell would be ready to accept that, that categorization. And there's a lot of different parts of American Academy, yeah. um, that, um, I don't know that, that I, that I also perhaps, they also definitely know less. So there's, you know, that yeah. uh, my, my experience is, and I do think that, you know, some of, a lot of my experience when I talk about American anthropology, it comes from my like regular engagement with the American Anthropological Association mm-hmm. and its annual meetings, et cetera. So those are things that are, uh, you know, I can, um, that are national bodies yeah. and I can speak to, but there are different, very different, um, I mean, anthropology departments, they're, they're very, very different ones at different yeah. colleges, universities, et cetera. They, might, they can look very different. Hmm. 
But I mean, I think it's great that you have this experience of working in corporate sectors that kind of appreciate and welcome uh, people with social science background. And I was wondering if you would have to give any advice of a company just starting on that journey, you know, exploring how anthropology can, can kind of bring value to a product iteration or a design challenge. What would you say to them? You know, like what would be an easy way to just start dipping your toes into the world of social science? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I think that, that it, that's actually a really, I, I think the question about what, where is the value versus how do you start, start dipping your toes into it are like a little bit distinct, I guess, in my mind in terms of like, I think that speaking to, to somebody about the um, kind of um, nuanced engagement and or kind of fine grain, those are terms I've used earlier today, but it, um, engagement with the people who theoretically are are um, you're designing for, mm-hmm. um, cl- I think though that getting to know that context better, I think um, is pretty easy to convince somebody of that. That, uh, but also that 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 there is that this fi- that some kind of deeper understanding of, of of people is significant. But then the question is, how do you get there? Because that's true. It's certainly true that many people think that. Um, uh, for for lack of a better term, big data. I hate to throw that around because sometimes people use it as kind of a scary, oh, well, big data. It's like over there, they're the bad guys. Of course, I don't feel, not of course, I don't feel that way. But there's, you know, some people who would think that a, um, a lot of quantitative data about people is how we get a fine grain analysis of people um, because then there's, there's numbers. And I think that that's um, a very widespread idea mm-hmm. that... Um, that would give you more textured analysis than and all my fancy terms about people than than just watching them mm-hmm. um, because the watching them gives you anecdotal information is what many many people would describe but I think that the um, ways that um, ob- observation of people uh, the way that the, it gives depth of understanding I think is is um, is a real key beyond the kind of breadth of um, quantitative data, which certainly can be complementary. I know that that's perhaps the the easy answer that, oh, they're both important, right? Um, But I don't think that competing about, you know, which is more important is really all that helpful. Um, But simply to say that there's an added perspective that you can get that you're, Mm -hmm. that is missing from a, from a mainly quantitative approach. So when I said that, um, many within um, private sec- the private sector might still value somebody who has academic engagements. I didn't mean to suggest that there is a broad uh, acceptance that of, mm-hmm. of qualitative work. I mean, I, th- there continues to be a very, very strong um, uh, culture of uh, valuing quantitative data um, yeah. You know, I remember um, one of my first projects that I did um, in when I came out of the uh, of the university, 
I was staying so much away from organizational culture projects because that was a space where I felt like I don't have t enough experience. Uh, but most of the interest that I got in my work was around organizational culture. So um, I remember one moment where I was sitting in this corporate meeting and they were discussing the survey um, of the whole organization and what did it mean for that particular department. And, you know, they were like shouting out numbers about engagement, satisfaction, um, dis dissatisfaction, and everybody was like so bored and checking their phones. Um, and then one of the, the head of the department comes over, turns to me and says, so um, as an anthropologist, what do you think about this? Um, and <laughs> I immediately put on the spot and, and I started asking, you know, uh, people, um, what do they feel and to elaborate more on those answers that came to that survey and, Im and immediately like the whole room started engaging in conversation and you know starting discussing because once you put 57% and dissatisfaction you know you, you, you just see the number but you don't really engage with what does it mean for you you know, what is your experience? Um, and I think once you start, you know, facilitating and mediating those conversations, then those numbers just become more potent because they have a more nuanced understanding, like you would be saying, behind them. And, and people start talking to each other about, the, you know, so what? What does it mean? You know, what does it mean for our group? What do we feel in our group? So we ended up, it was a one-hour conversation, so they had to throw us out of the meeting room because we stayed there for two hours and a half and the other mm -hmm. the meeting had been booked by another team so they had to throw us out because nobody wanted to leave so it was mm -hmm. I think for me it was a very beautiful moment um, that kind of showed me uh, the power of just starting asking questions and getting people to speak out you know and creating mm -hmm. and facilitating an environment of trust that kind of allowed them to speak um, mm -hmm. which I think for me as an anthropologist was slightly different from what I was taught to do, which more, you know, you're more in the background, doing more um, observation or participant observation. You don't try to get people to kind of engage in group interventions. And that was kind of like the first time, I think in corporations, there's so much to be talked around power and agency and the dehumanization of the corporate boardroom and how, what are the rules of regulations of people just engaging with each other and recognizing their humanity. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of value in kind of, you know, facilitating that space of trust for that to happen as an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think also, though, um, to go back a little bit to your question about, like, um, you know, one dipping their toes into the anthropo mm -hmm. into anthropology or how what that might mean in a um, commercial context. I mean, I think there is a fair amount of um, case studies, et cetera, that people can read about how, how things actually mm -hmm. look. But I also think, um, and, and this is perhaps a really typical position of a PhD anthropologist, I think it's important to, while people are, I think it's important for people to start to sensitize themselves to ideas, but also realize that there, there are things that long-term academic expertise brings mm -hmm. that, yeah. it, that you, can, you can get from engaging with somebody who is trained as such that, that um, I feel like sometimes people are trying to, um, they want me to like, teach them how to, you know, okay, well, how do I get the anthropological way of thinking in an hour? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I actually just spent a bunch of years doing that, learning that. So I can't just hand that to you in a very short period. Mm. And 
that, as I said, you know, that is perhaps typical of me as an academic, academically trained PhD anthropologist to feel that way. But I do think that there are ways to engage with people who have longer term expertise that can also help yeah. guide that process. So while I think that's not to undermine the importance of people starting to sensitize themselves to the kinds of um, uh, kind of also critical perspective that anthropology can um, can bring to things um, through reading case mm. studies, etc. But um, I would make a small argument in favor of continued engagement with um, with folks who also have um, have kind of a, a long term academic engagement. And that's not to bring like that's not to say that um, I'm doing a little bit of work right now on the role of um, social the history of social theory as a um, business technology. Mm-hmm. So um, that's not to say that people should be throwing around, um, you know, um, Merleau-Ponty and uh, mm-hmm. whatever your favorite fancy theorist is all the time. That's not, um, you know, I don't think that's entirely necessarily, but necessary, but the really big, having people who have read broadly in mm-hmm. cultural theory and anthropology, then that allows them to like percolate questions through that filter that they have in their in their brain and that's yeah. a tool that takes a long time to build and so you know there's a role for those people who, who have that theory beyond yeah. the beyond the initial sensibility hmm. wow i think that's great alexis would love to keep keep, keep this conversation going but um our time is kind of almost up um we just wanted to thank you again for um just being part of our um podcast and this wonderful episode um I hope we hope um, our listeners enjoyed it just as much as we did. Um, yeah, thank you so much, and we hope to see you soon. Yeah, it was <laughs> bye great bye. to speak with you. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.